0: and welcome to our launch of DSNI deconstructs. We want to thank you for joining us as we bring together our distinguished guests to discuss topics related to the efficacy of land trust, community organizing, and the application of racial equity at the center. Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative or DSNI, formed in 1984, it is a community based planning and organizing group in the Dudley area of Roxbury, Boston. DSNI manages the largest urban community land trust in the country that includes homes, community gardens, parks, and playgrounds. DSNI is a membership organization with a 35 member board made up of community residents, area businesses, nonprofits, and religious institutions. The board helps to guide the work of DSNI, which focuses primarily on economic development, leadership development, and community collaboration, as well as the development of the land trust. In this podcast series, we will engage our guests and listeners to question, analyze, and think towards the futurity of our community and city together. So I'd like to welcome John Smith. He is the current executive director of Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Hi, John.
1: Hi, Farai.
0: You wanna share a little bit with us about you and your role with DSNI?
1: i Sure. Um, as executive director of Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, I basically direct the overall strategy of the organization, especially as it relates to the, basically the development of our land trust and the programming, primarily community organizing um, that deepens our work in the city of Boston around equity. Great.
0: Thank you. Today, we are joined by Dr. Carolyn Crockett. Dr. Crockett holds a PhD from the American Studies Program at Yale University a Master of Science in Geography from the London School of Economics, and a Master of Arts and Religion from Yale Divinity School. Her career mission is to continue to work at the nexus of civic education, economic development, and urban revitalization. She is also Professor of Urban History, Public Policy, and Planning at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dr. Crockett authored the 2018 book, People Before Highways, Boston's Activists, Urban Planners, and a New Movement for Citymaking, which examined Boston's anti-highway expansion movement in the 1960s. Prior to her current stint, Dr. Crockett served the city as Director of Economic Policy and Research and as Director of Small Business Development between 2014 and 2018. And we are going to welcome Dr. Carolyn Crockett. Hi, Carolyn. How you doing? I am good. I'm so glad that you could be here with us. So I'd like to just dive right in.
2: Sure. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you both for having me and let me be in the conversation.
0: We are uh, We have launched our book club on People Before Highways. We are using your book and we are very excited. And this first question is, Just to really get us started with, what is your understanding of the democratic practice as it relates to citizen deciding their future, citizens deciding their future? It's coined in the book, and I just want you to elaborate a little bit on that, certainly for those of us who are in the book club, but for those in our community who might pick up the book.
2: Yeah, well, big question. You know, for I'm not surprised, you just come out the gate just big and bold, so yeah, this is this is the heart of the question, of the heart of the work, which is basically how can we, you know, be in charge of our own lives, our future and our destiny, and, and not just what we're doing and how we're able to participate in processes that have to do with decision making, but how that relates to space. So I have to say, again, a big thank you for being a part of this conversation because I grew up in Uphams Corner. That's where I was a kid. So uh, DS&I is is a neighborhood that I grew up knowing about and had a chance to to work there as a teenager, really. And so it is amazing to to actually be in this conversation with you to know that the experience that I had at DS&I was formative to my own understanding about possibility, about self-determination, about place and space, and so, at a very deep level, I think the work and the mission of DSNI has been um, so instrumental to my understanding as a person, as a resident, as a scholar, as a person who is still engaged in these conversations about land. And again, what it means to allow communities to realize that not only are they worthy and deserving and capable, uh, but they are essential to determining how we use. Uh, space, how that connects to our sense of power, how that connects to uh, the redemption and repair work that we have to be about uh, in this business of not only thinking about how do you undo oppression, how do you do systemic uh, marginality that is all about dispossessing people from land, from space and identity. So a lot of this is is a reclamation act. And being able to allow processes of decision making, processes of discussion of community building and power is very much tied to how we understand the land that we are on and have been snatched from over and over.
1: Yeah, I think it's just thinking about talking about, you just talked about agency. Mm-hmm. You just talked about the whole idea of the possibility and about land and space. But the point I liked was the whole idea of marginality and dispossession. Mm-hmm. And so of just expanding on that. Like, what would that mean for us historically in the city of Boston? And now, as we think of land use and how land is used and developed. And-
2: yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, if you take it through how we understand the process of dispossession. Right. And so if you think about all the intersectionality of um, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia, all of the isms and everything, we can go right through it. And how so much of that is about infusing the subject or the person with a sense of doubt, doubt about their own ability, their own worthiness and their own power. And so the absolute success of systems of oppression and marginality is that feeling that you are not worthy, that you don't matter, that you don't have the power to do anything. At the deepest level, uh, community building organizations, community organizing institutions like DSNI are able to uh, really call out a powerful North Star because of the, the ability to put that right To actually build up a sense of, again, power, uh, possibility, capability, and strength from the inside out. So as I mentioned, you know, I grew up in the neighborhood, not far from Diaz and I at all. Like a stone's throw across Columbia Road on Sumner Street. And I remember being a kid in the neighborhood. And um, just like any regular city kid, neighborhood kid, just running around, you know, hide and seek and playing with friends and dodgeball and all that stuff. And that we were always snacking. You know, on penny candies, store-bought candy chips, all that stuff that just ruins your teeth. <laughs> and I remember, you know, just eating like, you know, 25-cent bags of potato chips and now-relators and Twinkies, eating all that stuff and, and just throwing stuff on the ground. Like, it just wasn't anything. You just, you know, you eat something, you throw it on the ground. And so I must have been, I'm going to say maybe 10, 10 years old. So that's like the fifth grade or, or, or coming into the sixth grade, eleven. And there was a, so a project that was organized through a community organization, not DSNI. This is pre DSNI for me. And they got a bunch of kids from Upton's Corner together and they said, you know, we want you guys to help beautify the neighborhood. That was the word. And we're going to pick up this trash on the ground. And I said, well, what are you going to do that for? I'm like, it's on the ground for a reason, it's trash. And so as a little person, like a 10, 11-year-old person, my mind was already, um, what is the mind of so many kids in our neighborhoods? Like it's trash, you, you take it, you throw it on the ground. There's no consciousness about the fact that you are actually uh, desecrating or you're you're destroying your own neighborhood by something small as like a, a wrapping paper from Now or Later or Twinkies or something. And that's like the beginning of that, that disconnect. And so I remember that project really well because in so many ways for me, um, that moment where the the twinkies wrapper or the bag of potato chips is is not just trash that goes on the ground it's trash that needs to go in a trash receptacle and that on that saturday morning all these little <laughs> crumb snatchy kids like i was are being asked to take that first step and pick up the trash and and build that sense of of direction, sense of investment, sense of self, sense of worth. That started with something that was so everyday. And that was the beginning for me of a path that helped me uh, to learn more about DSNI not long after. And so to think that I could kind of, you know, have that kind of a moment like so many of us need, where like the switch flips in a way, switches on. And then DSNI's work saying, it's absolutely about residents empowering themselves, furthering their own visions of what they need and what they want, but also with this sense of value and purpose that is a journey. And I don't, you know, I tell that story because I don't take it for granted that it, it is an individual walk through community that we have to talk to families and kids and everyone because we're so conditioned but all of these systems of education, even so many jobs, even some of our relationships to devalue ourselves, to devalue our environments, and then again to be rendered powerless. And the technology that makes that possible is all around us. So I think of DS&I as like an extremely powerful disruptor of what is to help us be really committed to what must be and who we truly are. So again, just sort of commending you. So a very long answer to a short question, but um, it's real for me. And it is not just sort of academic or theoretical ideas, but how do we live that in a way that we are, are seeing the value and, and the purpose that is our birthright? But too often we are really disconnected uh, from uh, because of the way that we are formed and educated and socialized because of all these systems that have to do with a much longer story of, of, of coloniality um, and domination, which is the story of Western expansion.
0: Wow. I'm sitting here just thinking about different pieces of what it is that you said. And, and, and the thing that stands out the most is that you're, you're recalling this from memory. One question a little off the grid, connecting to the book club, you talk a lot about memory, and you just recalled something, and as I was just sitting, watching, looking at you speak from this place, it you know, you revved up your own passion, your own internal narrative around it. Can you talk a little bit about um, this idea of memory and it as an intervention? Um, in what way do you think that that uh, is actually prominent and can address? Um, inequities for for brown people or injustices that are going on? How could we use that as an intervention, and do you see that as a lever for change?
2: Yeah, you know, thank you so much for that question, in particular because this notion of collective memory and how it exists and what to do with that was a seminal Kind of discovery for me in the process of writing the book, and again, a big appreciation and shout out to the book club. It is such an honor and a little bit overwhelming to think that uh, DS and I has this book club that's reading my book. That just almost pushes me to tears, to be honest. So, so thank you for that. It's it's incredible, and the story itself of how people came together and stopped this highway fight it was is a big story and was a story that i had heard kind of as a young person a little bit bits and pieces of it it was something that i felt like okay you know this is incredible so you're going to tell me that people from all over the region came together in the 1960s and they stopped i95 from coming through the city of boston wow that's amazing people are like oh yeah we did that like it was dope you know we did this we talked we met and, and it, was, it ended over so how did y'all do that oh, you know, we did this and we did that. Every time I talked to someone, it was like a different idea about what had happened. And it wasn't like it wasn't all true. Like there were letters that were written, people protested, people met in kitchens and basements, people met with the governor, people went to Washington, you know, they did all these things. But I was like, what was the sequence? And how did it work? And the idea that we had this incredible, progressive, slam dunk victory, but- we didn't, or I could not discern, you know, clearly how that happened. Seemed like uh, an opportunity and a travesty at the same time, right? So, you know, so often you, you organize to to stop, you know, illegal dumping in your neighborhood, or you you organize to stop a highway, or you organize to protest uh, egregious policies. Um, and so often in those fights, you fight those battles not because you think you can win them necessarily, but because you 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 feel like you must fight because it's wrong, and you have to fight against it. That's usually the story. But to think that we fought and we fought and we fought over years and then we won, amazing. But we don't know how. what? <laughs> like so that's not okay. you know, so I felt like, all right, y'all, so we I, I want to talk to people and put together the pieces of the story of how we did it. And so to bring it back to your question about memory, when I started to really talk to people and investigate, you know what happened and who was there. A lot of people wanted to talk to me. I said, okay, so you came together, you you organized, you discussed about what you would do to stop this road, and um, and so you know where did you go or, or what what did you meet and who was there, and people wanted to talk about the West End clearance, <laughs> and so I was like, oh no 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 no, yeah, you know, I'm not talking about the West End like that was in the '50s. I'm talking about you know I-95 in the '60s, and they're like, no 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 no, the West End this was this clearance of 20,000 families and it was and i was like yeah yeah i know it's terrible you know um urban villagers the book by that dude like we all got it and so it, after the like the third time for i, I was like um, stop <laughs> miss researcher <laughs> miss wannabe phd listen to what people <laughs> are trying to tell you and what they were helping me understand was that the memory of this other catastrophic event Mm -hmm. that displaced 15,000, 20,000 families almost overnight and was totally legal and was the way that urban renewal was first done, Um, it was the memory of that that was activated when people heard that this highway was coming. And so they felt like never again could we have something like that happened to us and it definitely should not and could not happen to people in Roxbury in Jamaica Plain in the South End. And so I was really struck to to think that this previous clearance act that was you know 7 8 almost 10 years before all of this real activism around stopping I-95, that was animating people as well. And so the idea of memory as pricking people to action as a, um, a force for change, as a force for uh d- yeah, just really activating folks on the ground was so compelling to me, and it it came up over and over again. People would tell stories about what their what their families experienced through clearance or different kinds of urban renewal projects in Ohio. People told stories about what they had experienced organizing for voting rights in Selma or part of the civil rights movement. In those interactions, they had with. With elected officials, with police, with other organizers was also pouring into their strategizing around this highway fight. And so I was I was blown away and sort of mesmerized by the way that all these vectors of memory of previous acts or previous abuses or previous Organizing campaigns, also coming out of the student movement, pe- things that people had done around stopping the escalation of the war in Vietnam was informing what they wanted to do here. So it just opened my eyes in a, in a way to, to, to think very differently, again, of, of memory as a force, as a presence, as a way of understanding a data Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about data, we want to go right to, to statistics. We gonna, We want to go right to dates. And but memory, as a, as a source of information, as a uh, as a particular kind of vector for action, is a thing I was really grappling with throughout this project. And so. Trying to show the way that it's moving, the way that it's activating, aligning people, and the way that it is creating new kinds of plans and new strategies for possibilities was a real learning for me and an opportunity to be, to to humble and humble myself and sit down and listen to how communities move and how they think and feel. And so I think that's true for a study uh, like mine in this book, but it is it is something to be reckoned with all of the time. And as people who care about community, as organizers, as elected officials, or whomever, whomever yeah. we we have to do a better job of recognizing that this is uh, there's an embodiment, this type of data that memory is, and it's it's present. So it's up to us to get to get. Uh, wise enough, to get sophisticated enough to catch that learning.
1: It's interesting because I think like, so memory can be, can make you basically be a source of inaction, or then memory can be a catalyst for action, right?
2: Or sometimes inaction inaction too, too. both, but just to recognize it as something that's in the room Mm -hmm. to be called out or to be understood.
1: And then thinking about that memory. So how do you go from 10-year-old trash on the ground, (laughs) 11-year-old... Desecration of land, <laughs> 16-year-old disruptor, mm-hmm. and then tying all that together. And you think about, so there's an, an individual coming into a certain consciousness of a system, right, that you tie together really well when you were giving that story. But the idea that, oh, now we have, we have to face systems, and these systems are about controlling land and oppression and all that. Where do you see that happening now? in this time and you know as we think about land as we think about a changing boston as we think about the economic development of boston as we think about land use in boston as we think about community organizing in boston where do you see the energy for that happening now
2: i think so much of this is about uh, demanding and commanding that we are in conversation with lived experience and even the consideration of memory however whether it's activating and galvanizing or traumatizing people to sit you down and making you still. Our lived experiences are are powerful and they are a part of how we (laughs) breathe, how we think and how we move. If anything, in these last couple years of ongoing and increasing reckoning, so it's racial reckoning moment, what George Floyd's murder has demanded. Uh, it has demanded that uh, many, many communities who were not paying attention to what was happening in the streets, to, to, to so many stories that so many of us know and have lived, that everyone was being forced to recognize this moment of lived experience and the crime of the death of this Black man Mm -hmm. at the hands of the state, at the hands of police. It is really pushing us beyond uh, really hollow discussions of what we think we know based on something we read and uh, kind of what the data says or what an academic report says or that everyone was like called BS on it, and it's continued to do that. And so this question of, for me, how do you allow folks who have been taught to really dismiss or wholly swallow their lived experience as something that is beyond sort of the realm of every day, we know it is, and really calling all of the systems that govern govern our daily life to, to really have to grapple there, too, is... Is what it is. And so, so much of the, the conversations, again, even in the 1960s, since I feel like that's such a, a crucial moment, not just of activism, but I call the 1950s and 1960s as this formative moment for reorganizing land in cities when the federal government was, was really sort of intensifying its investment, sort of its policy setting for good, often for ill. Um, in these communities. And so a lot of these lands were being reorganized. Our power relationships were being reorganized. And this discussion about lived experience, this discussion about memory, I wasn't part of it in even a little bit. And so, a lot of these countercultural movements—the student movements, the women's movement, the Black Power movement, the movement for gay rights—was about fundamentally questioning and undoing uh, these ways of knowing and saying, "You don't know shit." Sorry, can I say that? Yeah, you don't know anything. Like this is this is corrupt. This is this is bankrupt. This is death dealing. And so. The more that we, the more that we're able to prioritize the lives of people who are most affected by uh, these kinds of systems and decisions, and so we can see uh, what it is that is at stake and what it is that we need to do different from the perspective of. of the government from the expect, from the perspective of uh, the nonprofit sector, the education sector, the economy, D.C., down the street, all of that. It is most people in the streets and people who have been left out of those discussions that are now leading uh, our understanding of what is what is necessary. So. It doesn't totally come back to what you're asking me and you can come back at me. But for me, there's a, a fundamental reframing of how we think about the ways that we embody, again, experience the ways that we embody data, information, and it doesn't have to uh, be subjected to this level of, of scrutiny or dissection by uh, by this other kind of system, whether it's academic or political. And I say that sitting here as someone who's on faculty, you know, of a very elite institution. And um, I think my own experience, educationally speaking, um, has been really, has informed my politics as well, because I can see how elite, well-resourced institutions are a key part of our undoing. And so how to question that and tackle that each step of the way uh, as a fully grown, you know, professor, person who is still that, 10 year old who was littering on the street and and recognizes that you know these uh, systems are these valorized uh rarefied places are still a big part of the problem and they have to uh, come into account for getting it right and giving us the tools that we need to rebuild and repair because we can tell them what we need
0: that that's so that's that's dead on and and you must have known where I was going with the, the questioning. I want to see if you can help us, Tisa, you know, how do we address all of these movements in particular with what happened with George Floyd and, and speaking specifically around anti-blackness, for instance, how do we address the anti-blackness that's perpetuated by the intersection of state, local politics, and land use planning um, or corporate control? Do, do you have any, you know, I know we were talking a little bit about Memory and that as a lever for change, by in that it activates people. As someone who has been right at the political level, um, in academia as well, what might be some policy-based things or some structural things that you you might say we we should be focused on? What do we need to be telling the new Wu administration <laughs> that they need to be focused on?
2: Well, you've already done some of it right there, just even in the framing of your question. This calling out of anti-Black racism as a bullseye target is, is an awakening moment. Not for everybody, because some people have been saying that for a very long time, rightfully so, but that there's a much broader consideration of what that is and what that means. Um, I was just talking about this with my students the other day. Uh, however you feel about the Biden-Harris White House you know, that's your business, but to have a moment where President Biden himself has spoken directly to white supremacy or anti-Black racism, I cannot think of another moment where the President of the United States could use those words. Mm -hmm. And granted, there could be speechwriters and whoever is saying, you got to say this, fine, but that there is a level of, of conversation and debate and uh, discussion that we're in that is unprecedented in some ways. Now, what that must do is command us to to act and call that out. And so, this discussion, the question that you raise, essentially about what are the policies or the strategies to not only call out anti Black racism but dismantle it? What does that look like? Is the question. And certainly when I was most recently in City Hall last year as appointed as the chief of equity, as the city's first chief of equity, that was a big part of my mandate, which is to say, how do we embed equity in all of the city's key policies, plans and regulations? And for me, the first step was uh, inviting people into a deeper conversation about what equity even is, Mm -hmm. because it is a word that people like to use a lot and we kind of talk past each other and we don't know (laughs) what it means. And so for me, that distinction between equity and equality is key. You got to make that up front. And I understand equity as a corrective action, as something that you're moving towards to drive more equitable outcomes for people, not just what you get on the front, but what you get on the end. How are we driving towards more equitable health, wellness, uh, well-being, security, stabilization for people on the other side? And then how are we thinking about everything from soup to nuts in a policy setting from a a legislative planning process that includes all the bills, all of the decisions that are coming out of a local government and going to a state legislature or even going on federally? How do we think about the budget, the budget as a moral document that is recognizing values and recognizing priorities and then wrapping that Around an equity frame so that the budget decisions are also driven uh, with a mind toward outcomes. And then how are we making sure to center on communities that have been um, uh, uh, typically left out and certainly in this moment that we're in disproportionately affected by the COVID pandemic? And so that is absolutely black and brown communities, that is absolutely immigrant families, workers, essential workers, um, so many people that have really sustained us through this moment. How is this an opportunity to really bring that magnifying lens on those communities that have held us but are often vulnerable because they have been wealth deprived, vulnerable because they have been on the negative impact side of egregious policies? How can we recognize that history and then reset The discussion, reset the table around policymaking, around investments. This is absolutely something that I believe this new administration that we have understands. Michelle Wu, as a candidate, as a city councilor, and now as Mayor Wu, has an incredible opportunity to further catalyze these values, these actions, these demands on the ground and turn that into living policy, living investments living, a a living legislative package that can deliver not just in the next year or two, but uh, can deliver real generational change, which is what we're on the cusp of as well. And so I don't, I don't say that lightly. I don't use that, those kind of words to, 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 to be hyperbolic, but because it's real, because the sacrifice and the pressure from what we've seen um, in Boston, in communities all around the country, the, the movement for Black Lives has shown us that people are saying, not today. Mm. It's, it's, we got to do something different. And not only have not only articulated no, but have also articulated what it is that we can actually do differently. And even the conversation around uh, police reform and what that looks like, we understand that that discussion was just meant to, was important and not small, but opening up a whole conversation about how we're organizing ourselves as a society, supposedly governed by the rule of law, and how can we be more thoughtful and more intentional about what that law is and whom it protects and whom it doesn't.
0: So that's the call. We're winding down here, but I wanted to invite John back in with uh, one closing question.
1: You talked about the vulnerability, right? In terms of community, I'm thinking. You know, we definitely saw that with COVID. (laughs) We definitely saw that with COVID. But thinking about, you know, all the policies and all the changes you talked about in in terms of equity, what what then would a system that's embedded with equity or policies embedded with equity, what would that look like? So, in your work, you you you, we think about a highway that wasn't built. (laughs) There was a thing there, right? There was a tangible thing that happened or didn't happen, right? So, do you think we think about What does the equity embed look like for communities, especially vulnerable communities, who need to build resilience for whatever else comes down the road? Probably for us now, the next big thing is something to do with climate change. Like, what does that actually look like? What's the tangible thing from that?
2: Yeah, I think we're in a real moment of opportunity to look at the city of Boston, at least, and so let's, let's keep it here for a second. Our entire land portfolio so what are, what are all the land holdings that the city has that are publicly owned land uh, through the city of Boston that are quasi uh, publicly owned lands, maybe through the, the planning and development agency, as well as Massport? Like, what are these lands that are within the government purview? What can we say about our housing projections about our climate change projections and how can we bring the public into a much more directed and informed conversation about the overall planning and use of those lands. That has been, um, I think there's a flag to plant in the ground there. And and DSNI has taught us so much about what to do in terms of creating processes that are clear, that are intentional, that can be messy sometimes because you have residents and you have folks in the discussion, but are determining what to do. The invitation for me is to bring even more data and more conversation into the hands of, of, of everyday people, whether you own or rent, you live in the city, let's talk about it. Let's plan the future of, of setting standards in terms of, of, of housing outputs, but also let's connect that to a jobs conversation. Because we know that even in this moment of economic crisis that we're still in, you know, we don't want really to talk about it because there are some areas where we're rebounding that the area of productivity and gain continues to be in the tech sector in terms of jobs. There continues to be this disconnect between uh, tech opportunities for work and investment and people in the neighborhoods really having access to those jobs, uh, many of which that stand vacant and continue to grow do not require uh, advanced degrees or advanced training. So there's a there's an availability that's there. So I connect these this discussion of land, use and development, and economic growth through jobs in a way that I feel like is important as we think about the housing question, that to bring all of these discussions into concert because they often happen in different places. Uh, you and I know this different city departments or agencies, and it is not serving us so well to have conversations that are so disconnected in the government space, but also considering what that means for private sector work. So the equity discussion has got to be a real assessment of the land that we have, our holdings, what that means for climate risk um, and sea level rise, which we are so uh, vulnerable uh, to. And then what kinds of real investments will be necessary to address the racial wealth gap? What does that mean when we take a generational approach to it? So that in 50 years time, if not sooner, we can see some of the impact, the, the impacts and the outcomes that we know we need right now, because we know that if we continue at the same level of sort of blindly making a decision here on this parcel of land or this deal with this company or these jobs here or this, that is not going to get us anything or anywhere close to where we need to be. If that target, again, is about what are we at? 2021? And if we're imagining 50 years into the future, that seems so long from now. I probably won't be here. I don't know. Well, I definitely time. won't be here. You no. won't
0: be. Okay. I'm going to be here.
2: Longevity. Thank you for I'm gonna be here. Longevity. Because that's what it takes. Because when folks were planning for those highways in the 50s and planning for uh, urban renewal, quote unquote, and, and clearance with new housing and all that, that was a 50-year strategy that started And they were very much projecting into into now. And so now that we have seen the aftermath of what we feel like are disastrous strategies, disastrous plans and policies, an incredibly myopic understanding and an impoverished understanding of equity, we have 50 years of data. So we stand in a moment of being able to again look 50 years ahead and whether or not we are here (laughs) <laughs> you and I, John. Uh, this city will be here. This world will be here. And so, the kinds of decisions, the kind of vision casting that we do in this moment uh, is 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 critically important. And it is not a small task because that is actually how. You have to dream into the future because that is how we in got to closing, now. In closing, thank you.
0: Rapid fire. This is DSNI Deconstructs, but if we were planting seeds, what seed would you tell the community? What seed would you tell urban planners? What seed would you tell government to build something new? We're speaking about vision, future.
2: Believe the people, believe in their lived experience, believe. And invest in uh, visions that are bolder and bigger than what we think is possible, because that's the only way we get the change. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. So Thank much. you both. So oh, much fun. This Thank was you. Awesome. Thank you for being with us, Carolyn, John. I couldn't have done it without my co-pilot here, holding it down. Ed, John Smith, and I am Dee Farai Williams. Thank you so much for joining us on DSNI Deconstructs.